Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and osculate the latest sounds in science. I'm Victoria Brand. On this edition, we'll feature alien big cats and syphilis. But first, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. From ABC Online, remote lie detectors raise a sweat. A new method for measuring blood pressure, pulse rate and sweating could also be used as a lie detector. A study has revealed that human sweat ducts can be monitored remotely to tell how much a person is sweating. Sweat ducts are a similar shape to helical antennae. As antennae, they can interact with a certain wavelength of energy, known as a T-ray, which is similar to an X-ray. Machines that emit and detect T-rays bouncing off sweat glands can generate a picture of which part of the human body is producing sweat. Changes in sweat production are directly linked to specific human behaviours, such as sunbathing and eating spicy chilies. They are also linked to many human diseases and medical conditions which cause changes in heart rate and blood pressure. Blood pressure is normally measured with inflated pressure cuffs or surgically implanted monitors, which require contact with a patient. This new method could give readings continuously and remotely. However, it is also possible T-ray emitters and detectors could be used as remote lie detectors. Lying triggers physiological responses such as a faster pulse, higher blood pressure and increased sweating. Some people connected to conventional lie detectors can train themselves to control these physiological mechanisms so that a lie cannot be detected. If the remote method is used, people might not even be aware they are being tested, which makes catching them out easier. But the testing might be biased by what is known as false positives, where a person who is telling the truth might still display an increased heart rate, blood pressure or sweating, and is judged to be lying. The development of these detectors could be considered unethical because it's an invasion of privacy. A baby born with two faces, two lips, two noses and four eyes was born a little over three weeks ago in a hospital in the suburbs of Delhi. Since then, the people of her village are celebrating, hailing little Lali as the reincarnated Hindu god Ganesh, the god who is half person and half elephant. Lali has an extremely rare condition known as craniofacial duplication, where a single head has two faces. She and her mother are both reported to be in good health. Engineered polymers could promote spinal neuron recovery, technology review reports. Scientists at Northwestern University are developing a liquid material which has self-assembling properties. It assembles itself spontaneously into hollow nanofibers, which can act as a scaffold for damaged spinal nerves. Professor Stump and his team of researchers have recently published results in the Journal of Neuroscience, which suggests that injection of this new liquid restores hind leg use in paralyzed mice. Mice are used as an animal model to mimic spinal cord injuries in humans. When the spinal cord is damaged, the injured nerves tend to form fibrous scars at the wound site, which block nerve fibers and prevent future regeneration. Stubbs molecules form hollow cylindrical nanofibers, which encapsulate the damaged nerves and act as a scaffold. What's more, the material appears to delay and possibly help the prevent the formation of scar tissue around the damaged nerves. In their experiments, the researchers simulated spinal cord injuries in mice. Then, 24 hours later, they injected them with the liquid polymer. 
Results indicated that treated mice have a better recovery than untreated mice. After nine weeks, treated mice were able to support their body weight on their hind legs. The material also appears to have reduced the amount of scarring and promoted the growth of both motor and sensory signals spinal cord neurons. Unexpectedly, they even appear to have helped the formation of myelin sheaths, which helped conduct signals down nerve fibers. Spinal cord nerve regeneration has been promoted before, using surgically implanted materials such as collagen fibers or other synthetic biodegradable polymers. Stupp's self-assembling polymer is truly revolutionary in that it doesn't require surgical implantation. Simply injecting the liquid at the site of trauma is enough to promote nerve fiber regeneration. A shirt that will recharge your cell phone? The National Science Foundation reports researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology have developed energy-producing fibers, which may be woven into t-shirts of the future. These zinc oxide-coated nanowires are able to harvest the mechanical energy produced by fiction and convert it into electrical energy. Once the nanowires are woven into fabric, the current obtained from such types of mechanical stress, dubbed the piezoelectric effect, might allow the wearer's everyday motions to power small portable devices such as a cell phone or an iPod. The fibers could even be woven into tents, curtains, and other structures and be used to capture energy generated by wind, vibrations, and other types of friction-generated motion. The fibers generate electricity by scrubbing up against each other, like the bristles of two brushes up against one another. Scientists at the Georgia Institute hope that, one day, Several of these fiber nanogenerators could be combined in order to produce a significant amount of energy. In practice, a nanogenerator containing two fibers about one centimeters in length would be able to produce an output voltage of about four millivolts. With a much improved design, these fibers could theoretically generate up to 80 milliwatts of power. There is a rub, however, washing the fabric. Zinc oxide is moisture sensitive and would have to be protected from the water. Next, we have John August with part one of a series on syphilis. He last delved into the details of smallpox, and for this feature, considers syphilis, a disease which is still with us today. In this part, he looks at some details of the disease and the microbes behind it. Syphilis is a disease which has been with us for much of history. It's caused by a bacterium, a tryponeme called Tryponema pallidum pallidum, part of the group, or phylum, known as Spirochetes, which have flagella, that is, small projections which help the bacteria to move around, running lengthwise between the cell membrane and outer membrane. But there are many other Spirochetes bacteria which are benign, and some which live in our mouths. The syphilis treponeme is different enough to cause harm. It has a spiral form, which lets it move through viscous fluids like mucus. However, the syphilis treponeme has an identical appearance to three other so-called subspecies of Treponema pallidum. These closely related bacteria cause the diseases of yaws, pinta, and bajor. They are also serologically indistinguishable, that is to say, there is no difference in antibody response, a way of testing to distinguish between different bacteria. They can also be distinguished through the DNA, but that's a much more complicated thing to assess. The bacterium normally gets into our body through a damaged part of the skin. It can't naturally pass the skin barrier, which is itself made of surface protein and cells which are too tightly pressed together for most things to get through. The bacterium is normally exposed to these surfaces through sex, through the vagina or anus, but sometimes also oral sex. Once it gets past the skin, if the immune system is unable to destroy it, it then reaches the bloodstream and is distributed throughout the body. However, it's possible for syphilis to be transmitted by other means. 
physical contact with the rash of secondary syphilis can transmit the disease, including kissing and sharing personal items. A group of glassblowers infected each other through sharing their instruments, and it was possible for medical workers to be infected and then pass it on to other patients. It can also be transmitted congenitally from the pregnant mother to the fetus and between the baby and a woman who is breastfeeding the child. It is also possible for syphilis to be transmitted through blood. However, the microbe does not survive if the blood is chilled, so this was found to be an effective way of reducing its transmission. Being a bacterium, it can be treated with penicillin, but unlike some other bacteria, it multiplies quite slowly and must be exposed to penicillin over a long period. For this reason, the penicillin is normally applied using an intramuscular injection into the buttocks. It does not persist for long if you take tablets, only till the kidneys remove it, which doesn't take much time. Another alternative is an intravenous drip, but this means remaining in a hospital bed for the duration of the treatment. The first stage is that the microbe reaches your bloodstream. Next, it infects the central nervous system, which is normally monitored through the spinal column, an important part of the central nervous system. If it gets this far, the microbe can be killed with penicillin, but a longer treatment is required. Presumably a smaller amount of penicillin is able to migrate from the blood and lymphatic systems into the nervous system, which necessitates a longer treatment. But syphilis normally goes through several stages. In the first stage, primary syphilis, a small lesion forms around the site of the original infection. This lasts for just a few days. Sometime later, a rash appears and we have secondary syphilis. By this time, the bacterium has spread through much of the body, away from the original site of infection. But again, this rash disappears soon after appearance. The last stage, tertiary syphilis, may appear only after several decades. At this stage, the microbe can infect almost any tissue of the body, and it can also affect the brain and bones. At the Museum of Pathology at University of New South Wales, you can see some malformed bones from patients who had tertiary syphilis. However, having said this, it's difficult to access the museum unless you are part of a booked tour group, and on open days, the queue runs down the stairwell and I understand it is not easy to get in. This is quite a strange progression, and it does prompt you to wonder, just why does the disease reappear after all those years? Has the immune system become less effective, or has it just forgotten? But by the time the immune system has figured out how to defeat the bacterium again, it has a beachhead in so many parts of the body, and while the immune system may be as running as effectively as it was before, it's now unable to de defeat the bacterium because it can divide more rapidly than the immune system can kill it off. It does seem that the microbe can somehow wall itself into any organ where it landed via the bloodstream, where it cannot escape the attention of the immune system. Just why the immune system cannot get to it isn't clear. Late syphilis affecting the brain caused what was called a general paralysis of the insane, and prompted an innovative treatment involving deliberately induced fever. Fever-inducing agents included malaria, with the blood of, from one patient being injected to the next to maintain the supply of infected blood. Another treatment involved putting the patient in a cabinet to deliberately raise their temperature. These treatments seem to have been effective, but it's not really clear how they actually worked. This brings me to the end of part one. For me, syphilis is a fascinating disease, partially because it was known as the big pox, in contrast to another disease I'm fascinated with, smallpox, but also because in some ways it mirrors the experience we've had with HIV. Also, it's not my specialty, and I've struggled with the pronunciation of words, so apologies about any errors. 
So far I've focused on the bacterium itself, but I plan to illustrate these analogies to HIV in future parts when I go into other historical and contemporary aspects of the disease. That was John August looking at the disease of syphilis, which we're fortunately able to cure these days. I got it from Agnes, she got it from Jim. We all agree it must have been Louise who gave it to him. She got it from Harry, who got it from Marie. And everybody knows that Marie got it from me. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio Show. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Has a marsupial big cat been seen in the country of New South Wales? Chris Reberg of Where Light Meets Dark, www.wherelightsmeetdark.com, examines the evidence. G'day, I'm Chris Rayberg from Where Light Meets Dark, and I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey through some of Australia's more mysterious animals. We begin this week by looking at a claim which is almost outlandish. Only last month, a woman reported seeing an animal in July 2007, which almost defies description. She was on a small country property near Singleton, in New South Wales, with her friend and a third person. The property adjoins a national park, and there on the road in front of them was a very large black animal that she described as follows. The tail was long, but not as long as a big cat, thick at the butt end, and much skinnier towards the tip. The head was sort of like a cat, but not really, broad head, pointed short ears, longer muzzle than a cat, big weird teeth, and medium length whiskers. It snarled, but I heard no sound. I was probably too frightened to hear anything. Similar height to a Rottweiler dog, but much longer in the body. The hindquarters were lower than the shoulders. In short, all I can say is it looked like a panther crossed with a quoll. For the uninitiated, a quoll is a carnivorous marsupial related to the Tasmanian devil and thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger. There are four species of quoll in Australia. Early settlers called them native cats because, well, they look a little and behave a lot like cats. The largest known quoll is about the size of a large house cat. The animal in this singleton sighting, however, was estimated at between 70 to 80 kilograms, based on a comparison with a friend's two bull mastiff dogs, which weighed 50 and 60 kilograms. The description continues in considerable detail and includes a number of features that have very quickly led amateur researchers to conclude this was an example of thylacolio carnifex one of Australia's extinct marsupial lions. Although King of the Bush doesn't quite have the same ring as King of the Jungle, Thylacolio was almost certainly the dominant predator in its day. It has been estimated that Thylacolio had the strongest bite in proportion to body weight of any mammal species ever. A 100 kilogram Thylacolio would have had the crushing power of a 250 kilogram African lion. The only problem is, that Thylacolio carnifex is believed to have become extinct some 30 to 40,000 years ago. So what's going on here? The skeptics, who would probably be calling themselves realists at this point, would have rolled their eyes at this report ages ago. Do we have an artistic work of fiction, meticulously crafted to incorporate every possible detail of the anatomy of an extinct marsupial, being thrown to the masses who need precious little to allow their imaginations to run wild, or is Australia harbouring a hitherto unconfirmed species of megafauna, known to date only from the fossil record? Consider the following. There have been several hundred reports of big cats in the Blue Mountains area west of Sydney over the last several decades. Reports range from sightings of large black cats to footprints, scratch marks high up in trees, to livestock which has been killed by an obviously large predator and in some cases even been dragged high up into gum trees. 
Further south, in Gippsland, Victoria, 59 sightings have been reported in just the four years between 1998 and 2001. Paul Kleischer's website on big cats records five sightings along the eastern seaboard in March this year alone. Have hundreds of people got it wrong? Coming back to the foothills of the Blue Mountains, Luke Walker, aged 18 in March 2003, came back to his house one night after checking his mailbox at the end of a long driveway, covered in blood from wounds to his arms and torso. He was set upon by a large black cat, far too big to be a feral domestic, according to him. One government report at the time quotes veterinarian Dr Keith Hart saying that nothing found in this review conclusively proves the presence of free-ranging exotic cats in New South Wales, but this cannot be discounted and seems more likely than not on available evidence. International big cat expert Dr Johannes Bauer had also been commissioned to evaluate the evidence and concluded that, difficult as it seems to accept, the most likely explanation of the evidence is the presence of a large feline predator. Returning to Gippsland, Victoria for a moment, deer hunter Kurt Engel shot and killed a big cat in 2005. At last the believers thought they had proof in the bag. It turns out though that Mr Engel disposed of the body before reporting the incident to anyone. He did however cut off the animal's tail before doing so and DNA samples were extracted for analysis. The tail itself was inspected by a number of people and measured at between 60 and 65 centimetres. In addition to the tail, Mr Engel also took a few photographs of the carcass, but due to the nature of the kill, the animal's head was unidentifiable. Still, estimates of the total nose-to-tail length of the animal based on these photos and the known length of the tail put Engel's cat at between 170 and 176 centimetres. Putting that into perspective, Guinness World Records lists the longest domestic cat on record at just under 122 centimetres. Engel's big black cat beats this by about 50 centimetres. However, when the DNA results came back, everyone was stunned. Rather than being a melanistic leopard, often called a panther, this critter came back as Fearless Catus, a feral domestic cat. Australian native fauna be warned, strange things are afoot with our feral cats. So what of the singleton creature? Of course, there's nothing between the big cats of the Blue Mountains and Singleton except for over 100 kilometres of national park as the crow flies. But was it Thylacolio, presumed extinct for millennia? The quality of the sighting description is outstanding in its detail, but ultimately the value of the sighting as evidence for Thylacolio is in fact worthless. None other than the body will be accepted as proof, and even that hasn't materialised for the Tasmanian tiger, presumed extinct for only 70 years. As an individual testimony, this latest sighting may seem worthless, but so do all the big cat sightings when considered individually. The real value here is in the numbers and locations of the sightings. Singleton puts another dot on the map and reminds us that with hundreds of big cat reports and six-foot moggies, we all should keep one eye over our shoulders next time we go bush. Oh, and with one enthusiast posting a $1,000 reward for a photograph of any animal matching the Singleton description, Make sure you take a camera along. If you have any sightings of your own, send them to Chris Reberg of Where Light Meets Dark at www.lightmeetsdark.com. And finally, the news that didn't make the news. It appears that dyslexia depends on your language. 
been some recent studies that have been done on both English-speaking dyslexic and Chinese-speaking dyslexics, and they've found that that's actually um, a, there's a different part of the brain that's involved in both types. Uh, they believe this is a study that was actually done by um, a team led by a researcher called Li Hai Tan, who's a professor of linguistics and neuroscience at the University of Hong Kong. And what they did in this particular study is they took uh, 16 Chinese um, speakers from primary school, so primary school children, who had dyslexia, and 16 of their peers, other children that had a normal reading ability, and they were looking at the parts of the brain which seemed not to function normally in the children that were dyslexic. And what they found with the Chinese-speaking children was that it's a part of the brain, the mid-forebrain, which is affected, which is underdeveloped in dyslexia. So they have less grey matter, they have um, less activity in this part of the brain. Whereas with English-speaking dyslexics, um, it's more the posterior of the brain so it's more the centers to do with reading and they think that that's the cultural differences have actually formed two distinctive types of dyslexia for the english speakers or or people that have an alphabet language or a phonetic type language like ours um, it's the back of the brain the posterior part of the brain which is responsible for processing what we read because our language is quite um visual yeah, well, yeah, it is quite visual, and the alphabet is, is you sort of read it and you spell it out, and it's quite phonetic. Whereas the language, which is more tonal, it seems to involve a different part of the brain. It's more the forebrain, which is really the opposite end. So what is it in the Chinese language that the forebrain is processing and um, that can go wrong in dyslexia? I think it's more the tone and, and the rhyming of oh. the language that's part of the dyslexia. So does that mean that if you're a Chinese dyslexic and you move to an English-speaking country and learn English, that you'll be cured, as long as you speak English. I'm not so sure about that, Ian. They believe there are some genetic factors which predispose to dyslexia, and it's possible that if these are genetic factors that are, that are predisposing a weakness in one part of the brain, if you don't actually need to use that part of the brain, if you're, if you're li re um, learning a different language or speaking a different language, perhaps you'll be able to get around it. You won't be dyslexic. Maybe this is why Kevin Rudd speaks Mandarin. <laughs> possibly although that's probably not going to help him at the moment um i've got another one a very powerful story i have to say this one is really strong this is actually about a laser which is now the brightest light in the universe it's a laser that is actually it's been launched uh from texas from the university of texas in austin uh, the u.s and it can generate one petawatt of power a petawatt is one million billion watts, um, which is much more than the combined total of all the power stations I so think we've got. one with 12 zeros after it. A million billion, yeah. I guess, yeah, that would be, wouldn't it? A million billion. Um, yeah. You've got one terawatt, which is a trillion watts, and this is much bigger than that. Um, and what they're doing is they're using this laser for generating short short pulses and you can you can use it um, in astronomy for disrupting um, puffs of gas or fields of gas and they actually believe that if they concentrate it in a certain way they can actually generate the formation of new stars with this laser that they've built yeah well the laser at the moment might not be powerful enough to do it but if they work on it for a little bit longer this, this sort of 
Is this a military laser disguised as an astronomical laser? Um, I mean, come on, we're talking astronomical engineering. Uh, it's not something that normally astronomers are involved in. No, I, well, I'm not 100% sure about that, Ian. But it, it seems a little suspect to me. I'm, I'm the sort of guy that's thinking if they've got a whole heap of money that they're willing to spend on a laser, why not actually give a bit of money to, <laughs> to wiping out malaria in Africa or... Or something else. So they don't really say what they're going to... I mean, I doubt they're going to be doing astronomical experiments with it. So they don't say what it's going to be used for other than mass destruction? Um, well, they say that the experiments could help these scientists learn about um, how electricity is conducted through Ooh. exotic matter, electric magnetic fields. Um, and it's also to do with understanding gamma ray bursts. I don't really know much about gamma rays. Um, but um, it's also con connected with the production of antimatter. So um, it's so powerful, it's it's creating antimatter as well. Well, it could potentially be creating antimatter. Say <laughs> what's going on. If and the T rays, the T rays that you were talking about, aren't they the same T rays that are used in airports to look under your clothes so that the guards can look at you naked? Um, I believe they are, Ian. Yeah. So not only can guards look at you when you're... Well, look at you as if you were naked. They can also detect or think they can detect if you're lying. So they can see inside your clothes and inside your mind. Yeah. Appalling. Oh, I know. It's a massive invasion of privacy, isn't it? It's the end of dating right there. I know. You just go out on a date and you just take this little detector with you and there's, no, there's nothing left to the imagination anymore, really, is there? But I got it from Agnes, or maybe it was Sue, or Millie, or Billy, or Jilly, or Willie, or doesn't matter who. It might have been at the pub, or at the club, or in the loo, and if you will be my friend, then I might, mind you, I said might, give it to you. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were John August, Chris Reberg, Patrick Ruby, Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced and paneled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show. Diffusion.